If you happen to have a Bible with you, would you go to Romans chapter 12? Maybe you have a hard copy or you have it electronically. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back. I'd love for you to pick one up on your way out this morning. They're in that brown table back there. I want you to have a copy of God's Word. Before we dive into this this morning, I would love to pray with you, and specifically this way. Um, This week, I don't know why more than others, prior to even the the shooting that took place in Pennsylvania yesterday, um, God's really been burdening me with the lack of unity in our nation. And the incredible, um, I would call it a dark spirit of angst, if you know what I mean by that. There's definitely, you know, like a lot of headbutting going on. That, that's not of God, right, church? That's not of God. God's not the author of confusion, and that is not of him. He is the God who wants unity. And so we know it begins with us. It begins with Christ followers. After uh, the events of yesterday, um, if you're not familiar with it, there were 11 people murdered in Pennsylvania in a synagogue yesterday. And beyond that, six individuals wounded, and some of those were police officers. Um, It was even exacerbated more in my mind. So in both the Saturday night service and then in the 915 and here, I'd love for our church family to come around this need to pray about this issue because it also speaks from the heart of Romans 12, as you're going to see in just a minute. If ever there was a section that speaks to our responsibility in the world that we live in, it's what we're in for this morning. So let's go to prayer. If you would join me in that, I would ask you to do that. Let's pray together. We would willingly admit, Father, that our emotions can be raw and tested, um, It can cause a degree of anxiety in our life when we look at events and we realize they're not the way they're supposed to be. We sing that you are able, and we're willing to declare you are able when we're in a church service and we sing songs, but the reality of recognizing that on Monday and Tuesday sometimes escapes us, especially when things aren't going right. And there may be some things that unfold in our lives this week that make us feel like you're not able. And maybe it's a recognition, first and foremost, for the greater need for humility in our life. But we come before you, Father, recognizing you are able. Your word declares it. You prove it over and over and over again. Yet what we see in our nation right now is this, this very dark force that has a grip on our land that feels like disunity to the degree where people will kill each other. And God, we would look back 50 years or 100 years and say, maybe it was better back then, but what we ask for is that you would take us to a place of unity that goes beyond our wildest dreams. And only you can accomplish that. This begins with your followers. It begins with us being the body of Christ. And so we're asking this morning, God, that you would unleash in us the capacity to walk in the power of the name of Jesus and be such a force for this world that people are drawn to you, that we are a fragrant aroma of the love of Jesus. So God, I pray that as we examine Romans 12 this morning, that you really drive that home for us this morning in the way that we're supposed to use these gifts that you speak of to be a benefit, not just for the church and not just for the, the friend that we have, but God, for this entire human world, that people would be drawn to the name of Jesus. So Father, we pray first and foremost 
that you would accomplish your purposes. And in knowing that, we ask that you would defeat the dark spirits that bring unity, uh, disunity against our nation. And we pray for unity. And God, we, let, we ask that that would begin with us and that our church would be known as one who seeks the love of Christ to be preeminent and that Jesus would be glorified in all things. God, we pray that as your people in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. I'm going to ask you this morning to envision yourself as a convict, right? Just think of yourself maybe with a jumpsuit on right now, maybe an orange jumpsuit. And you're standing in a courtroom and you're before a judge. And not just any judge, he's a just judge, a righteous judge. And when you're before that judge, the judge comes to a determination that the crime that you've been accused of is true. You are guilty. And you know you're guilty. And the judge pronounces that you're guilty. Would you in that moment appeal for justice? Knowing that that's a just judge, would you say, I want justice. I am guilty, so bring it. I demand justice. No, you would likely say, I know I'm guilty. Could I please, Your Honor? If it pleased the court, could I have mercy? I know that I'm guilty. Would the court have mercy on me? And in that moment, the judge grants mercy. Would you not leave that courtroom with a bigger smile on your face? Would you not hit the sunshine with a new breeze in your hair? Would you not have joy over you knowing that the judge granted you mercy? That's who Paul writes to in Romans chapter 12. He writes to the church. He writes to those who have known the mercy of the judge, who does not find them guilty, but finds them forgiven, and he's granted mercy. So that's why verse 1 starts out in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, believers, new hope, by the mercies of God. See, he's thinking back over Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11. Many of you have journeyed through that because chapter 1 through chapter 11 explain the mercies of God. And chapter 12 says, now that you've experienced the mercies, you've got application here. So Paul's thinking back and he's thinking forward at the same time. And he says, you, you church, you know the mercy of God. That's why Paul can write Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, you took off the prison clothes, didn't you, church? You got to take off the chains. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, would you say amen? amen. Okay, so the reality is you no longer wear the prison clothes of a convict when Scripture says we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, that means everybody's under condemnation, everybody's a convict, until the judge pronounces mercy on them. And the mercy that's pronounced is because of what Jesus did. So if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you're not condemned, you're forgiven, and you've known the mercy of God. And Paul says, since you've known the mercy, I appeal to you, if you've known the mercy, you've got to live like this. And that's what Romans 12 is all about. And understand, these are not rules for earning God's favor. You've already got God's favor if you're a believer. You've already known the favor of God. What these are are the fruits, the fruits of being in relationship with God. And He gives you fruits. God gives His favor freely, but He also gives the fruits of the Spirit. 
And so he says, in order to carry out my purposes for you, I go even one step further. I don't just give you mercy. I give you gifts, things that you can do, capacities that go beyond your own human ability, things that I can do through the power of the Holy Spirit through you. And Scripture backs me up on this. Look with me on the screen, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The common good of who? The common good of the church, the common good of the humanity that doesn't know Jesus yet, for the common good. So with those thoughts in mind, go with me into Romans 12 in verse 6. This is where we pick up where we left off. Paul said, since we have gifts that differ... According to the grace that's given to each of us, to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now, he's got a list of seven gifts you're going to see this morning in verses 6, 7, and 8. That's what we're going to attack this morning, just those three verses. And he speaks specifically of how they're supposed to be exercised. But we're going to come back to that. That they're supposed to be exercised is the first thing I want you to get down. Charles Simeon said this in 1833 regarding just taking in more knowledge and not doing anything with it. He said this, to have the mind well instructed is good, but we must never forget that the end of the principle is practice, and that all the knowledge, whether of men or of angels, will be of no service if it do not, and that's the way they spoke in 1833, I didn't miswrite it, if it do not operate to the renovation of our souls after the divine image. The sad reality is that many Christians keep their spiritual gifts stowed away or in infant form, and they're never really exercised. Well, no gift, no ability is of any value if you don't actually put it to use. I read of a farmer who's retired up in Canada who has an incredible collection of rare violins, but no one ever plays them. He gets them out once in a while and looks at them, but there's nobody in his family that plays the violin. People that know him know that he has them, but they're just a collection that sit in his closet. They're of no value because no one with the gifting has put them to use. Well, Paul writes from this mindset when he writes Romans 12. He says, you are gifted, New Hope. If you know Jesus, you've got a gift in you, and you've got to be using the gift, remembering that's what the gift was designed for. So I frame this according to my understanding of how this text plays out. I want to show you the seven gifts first that he mentions. You'll see them up on the screen. It's really remarkable to me that he writes these in the midst of this theological treatise that he's prepared on Romans. He says there's the gift of prophecy, of service, of teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. But in the Bible, you find actually spiritual gifts fall into 35 forms. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 later today, you'll find 35 gifts of the Spirit listed there. But he's only listed seven here. Why did he do that? Well, if you look at the Bible closely, you'll find that there's three categories of gifts. There's the sign gifts, there's speaking gifts, and there's service gifts. And he's only listed the speaking and the service gifts here. What's going on? This is kind of my framing of the understanding of it. Before the New Testament was written in codified form, the way that you hold it in your hands right now, people could show up in a village in the Middle East or in Rome and say, I speak on behalf of Jesus. But how do you know that they actually do? How do you know that the things that they were saying were accurate? There was no way to authenticate them. 
Well, God gave gifts to certain individuals that authenticated that they were actually true apostles speaking on behalf of God, and they were known as sign gifts, wonders, and miracles. Look with me on the screen, and you see an emphasis on this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So sign gifts actually authenticated true apostles. And that became the measure of all the authentic writing, the things that you hold in your hands today. Now, Hebrews gives us a little further insight into this. Look with me on the screen again, Hebrews 2.3. After, and this is speaking of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Well, who's those who heard, church? Well, that's the apostles, the, the disciples, the Peter, James, John, Philip. Matthew, they heard, and then it was confirmed, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. It's very significant that you don't find any sign gifts in this list of seven. You find them in 1 Corinthians 12, and here's why I find it interesting. Chronologically, 1 Corinthians was written in A.D. 54. Romans was written in A.D. 59, give or take a year. Ephesians speaks to gifts, and 1 Peter speaks to gifts, but those were both written almost 10 years after the book of Romans. So what we find is the very earliest writing contains sign gifts, and as the church grew in size and was more established, you don't find a mention of sign gifts. So chronology plays into this. We have to ask ourselves what theologians have asked for a long time. Do some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit exist for a certain period of time and then cease to exist? I frame it that way for this reason. When you read the list that Paul puts together here, you have to ask, why didn't he include those in this list that we're about to look at? Keep that in your mind as we move forward. Now, in verse 6, he refers back to what he just spoke of in verse 4 and 5. He says, since we have gifts that differ, by God's grace, and it is God's grace, you have a gift in you this morning that's different than the gift in me. Different than the gift that's sitting next to you, the person on your right or on your left or behind you has a different expression of the Holy Spirit within them. Based on your experiences, where you're at in your journey with God, God shows up in your life in ways different than He shows up in mine. What Paul's talking about here is what we mentioned two weeks ago, unified diversity, that we're in unity, but there's diversification among us. And he's speaking to those who belong to Jesus, people who are children of God. And God says, to my children, new hope, to those who belong to me, I'm giving gifts that are different by my grace according to the grace that's given, and you haven't earned them, otherwise they wouldn't be grace. So they're different for you than they are for me. Paul says, those gifts, you have to exercise them accordingly. Now, I want you to bear down on that part with me because this is really significant to your life this morning. Begin thinking of an archer, someone who holds a bow in their hand. To exercise them, Paul's got this image in his mind because of the way that the word is actually used. So if you look at the Greek word in your notes or you see it on the screen, this is the word he actually uses when he's talking about exercise. So we think of an archer holding a recurved bow and pulling back on the drawstring and can't hold it very long 
because it's not a compound bow, there's no let off on it. Recurve bows have to be released, but that arrow that's about to be released has to find its mark. And Paul's saying that archer who bends the bow, and that's the thought here, there has to be a release. The fingers have to open and let that target be hit. Your spiritual gift is like the arrow in the quiver that has to be released and sent out. Paul's saying, exercise it accordingly. Let that thing go. And reminding you again, he's not giving an exhaustive list here. That's in 1 Corinthians. What he's really intent on is on the exercising of your gift in the right way. And that sets up the last part of verse 6. It says, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. Now, you need to lay into that phrase according to the proportion of your faith because it applies to each of you this morning with the gift that's in you. The first one he hits is the gift of prophecy. We want to make sure we understand what he's talking about because in 2018, our minds go to a fortune teller or somebody who's looking over a crystal ball or a palm reader. We begin thinking of something that seems beyond us. Well, that's not what the Bible's talking about. In Hebrew, the term is actually navai in the Old Testament, and that's a spokesperson, just a person who speaks the words on behalf of another. So one who speaks as a mouthpiece of God. When you think of Jonah, and you think of Noah, and you think of Jeremiah or Isaiah in the Old Testament, they were a spokesperson for God. Let's transfer that over to the New Testament. Here's the Greek word that's found in the New Testament, prophetia. And this is, again, a person who's literally speaking forth. They're delivering information. So biblically, a prophet is actually someone who's a person speaking for God. And we find reference to that in Ephesians 4.11 when God talks about the structure of the church. And I know some of you have this gift this morning. And I want to show you how you understand that you have it. Look with me on the screen at Ephesians 4.11. It says, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, prophetia, and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. If you've ever looked for my job description, by the way, there it is. God put it in writing. You know you're in trouble when your job description is in the Bible, okay? And and it's in black and white, and God says, here's your job. You're going to take my word, and you're going to equip the people that belong to me. And that's an intimidating job description. But interestingly, you find the word prophets within there. Why do you find that within the structure of the church? If you have the completed word of God and there's no new information, why do you find that phrase in Ephesians 4.11? Well, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets, they did speak new information. They did speak new revelation. When God came to Noah, he says, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. That was new information. When John wrote the book of Revelation of what the end times were going to look like, that was new information. But they also spoke things that were already known, like the prophet Jeremiah, who spoke about the things that God was going to do as a result of disobedience. We'd have to say in our day, prophecy is actually the gift of proclaiming the Word of God without any thought or connotation of prediction. Why do I say that? Because what you hold in your hands from Genesis to Revelation is the complete Word of God, right, church? Okay? So if this is the complete Word of God, there's no new information. Anyone who would show up and say, you know what, I've got some information about Jesus none of you know about. He told me something specific. God says, no, don't you add things to my word. 
This is called the canon of Scripture for a reason. It's complete. It's God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. So a prophet today is not delivering new information. Most notably, it's exercised when there's public proclamation of God's Word. Let me show you the best definition for prophecy today. Look with me on the screen. It comes from 1 Corinthians 14. One who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So today, the gift of prophecy is the gift of preaching, what you're watching going on right now this morning. And I know many of you have this particular ability. You can stand in front of a crowd and you can explain the Word of God and proclaim God's Word. So Peter has an admonition. Whether you're a teenager and you're going to do this one day, whether you do this in your small group or you do this at your school or you're doing this as an adult who's already on the job site, maybe you meet with a group at, at lunchtime for a small group Bible study, you're doing this and Peter's got an admonition for you when you do this. There's got to be an end goal. And he says this in 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks... Let him speak, as it were, the utterances of God, and he goes on to say, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever, because it's about Him, right, church? It's not about us. So He gets the glory out of it. To end this thought on prophecy, here's how John Kelvin explained it. And if you're new to church and you don't know who John Kelvin is, he's kind of famous. He's got a few universities named after him. Here's his quote, I prefer to follow those who extend this word by which anyone skillfully and wisely perform the office of an interpreter in explaining the will of God. Hence, prophecy at this time, this day, in the Christian church is hardly anything else than the right understanding of the Scripture and the peculiar faculty of explaining it. Inasmuch as all the ancient prophecies and the oracles of God have been completed in Christ and in His gospel. Well stated. Okay, so Paul ends that first thought with, if he's got the gift of prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. What does he mean by that? Because that applies to you if you're serving, if you're teaching, if you're giving, if you've got the gift of mercy. What does that mean according to the proportion of his faith? That means where you're at in your walk with Jesus. In other words, if you want to go deeper than what I can take you theologically, you got to go find a Chuck Swindoll who's 85 years old or a Warren Wiersbe who's in his 90s. People who are that much further along than me, I can't take you any deeper than what I am and what I know according to the proportion of his faith. So he goes into verse 7 with that same thought. If service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching... Now, service is a really general term, and I think you're going to learn something about New Hope this morning that perhaps you didn't know. This word didakomai, or where we get the word deacon from, applies to our church even though we don't have the office of deacons at New Hope. We have deacons and deaconesses, in other words, those who serve. In the very first church, the early church, the deacons were those who made sure people had food at the table, and they served them. Here at New Hope, we have something called the Compassionate Care Fund. The people who lead that, Chris Schimke, Vicki Parmer, Steve Whalen, they serve as deacons and deaconesses because they're serving the body. They make sure that money gets distributed to pay power bills for people who can't pay their light bill or individuals who can't buy diapers for their children 
or somebody who needs gas in their tank for their car to get to work. That's the job of the compassionate care fund, and they're diakonai in that setting. The next one he talks about is teaching, and I know you're going to think this is really straightforward, Mark. This is very simple. Well, if you're thinking straightforward, someone who just relays information, you're right. That would be simple. But there's many teachers among us right now. There's those who make their living in public schools and in private schools and those who teach in universities. And you teach and you relay information and you have one particular goal. Your goal is to assist people in their daily living. So if it's an elementary child, you're teaching them the alphabet so that they can read later on. If you're in junior high, you're teaching the basics of science. High school, you're preparing students for college. College, preparing students for life. So how do we understand that in the way that he's talking about teaching here? Well, this word didasco that's used here is actually a word that Jesus used of himself. It's not just the act of teaching, but a believer. If you're a believer this morning and you're teaching, this is a person who's divinely gifted with a special ability to present the Word of God in a way that it makes sense. If you open up the Bible and you show your next door neighbor or somebody at work a Bible verse and you explain that to them, you're teaching them. If they say back to you, oh, now I get it, that makes so much sense to me, that's the gift of the Holy Spirit in you, didasco. So Jesus used it this way about himself, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, didasco them to observe all that I commanded. So this gift of teaching can be a teacher in college. It can be a person in an elementary school. It can be somebody in a children's program, but it's only applied as a spiritual gift when it's God's truth that's being taught and explained. And you might have had somebody in your life confirm to you that you have that spiritual gift. Maybe someone has said to you, well, it makes so much more sense when I talk to you. I get that. That's why you find many pastors referring to themselves as teaching pastors because they have a job, a responsibility to make God's Word known. It's very easy that you would say that Paul has that spiritual gift when you look at him. He's both a preacher and a teacher. Now let's go into a little more application. Verse 8 says this, 8a, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality. Now, exhortation is really, really broad. And you're probably familiar if you've grown up in church with the term paraclesis because it reminds you of the Holy Spirit. And you see, you see that particular word because the Holy Spirit in the Bible is called the paraclete. Well, what is that? Someone who's a comforter, who's an encourager. They come alongside another individual and they're able to recognize when someone needs to be exhorted when someone needs to be encouraged. So here's the way that the Bible applies it. Jesus speaks of it this way because he has this particular gift. I will ask the Father and he will give you another, there it is, paraclesis. Why another? Because Jesus was leaving the planet. He's about to ascend to the Father. He's known as the comforter, the encourager, and he's saying there needs to be another one to come and take my place. So he says, I'm going to ask that the Father would send another. Who's the another one, church? The Holy Spirit, right? Is it not logical that if the Holy Spirit indwells you as a believer in Jesus, that he's going to impart to you a portion of who he is? 
So the paraclesis is the one who encourages you to be an encourager. Here's how it plays out in your life. It encompasses the idea of advising people and pleading or encouraging or warning or strengthening, and you can do this at Bigby. You do this at Starbucks. You can do this at Applebee's. You can do this in your own home across the coffee table. Maybe you're in a small group like Kyle was talking about. When you're using this gift, you're speaking into the life of another individual believer, someone who might be facing trouble or trauma or they're discouraged or they're depressed. Or maybe you've had to have somebody come alongside you when you've been really weak in temptation or you've done that for another person. That's the gift, the spiritual gift of exhortation and it's exercise to comfort a believer. Sometimes it's simply used to come alongside a friend who's just plain discouraged. So watch how Hebrews speaks to this verse, and we'll move on to the next one. Hebrews 10.24, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. By the way, that's saying don't skip church, okay? (laughs) Encouraging, there it is, paraclesis. Paraclesis one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you looked around the auditorium right now and you recognize, hey, one of my friends I normally go to the 11 o'clock service with is not here. Maybe you pull out your phone to text them and say, why aren't you in church? Well, that's a form of exhortation, but that really wouldn't be the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? You, you want to deliver the exhortation in a way that a person receives it well, and that is a gift, So Scripture says, when you do this, you got to do it in the right way. And let me show you a way to remember these first few that we've looked at. I'll put this up on the screen, and it's in your notes. Prophecy proclaims the truth. Teaching explains the truth. Exhortation, it calls believers to obey the truth. And then he switches over to the last part of verse 8 when he says, the one who gives, they give with liberality. Now, in the Greek language, giving is the word didomai, but it's modified here. Paul doesn't use the singular word for just giving, like giving over a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He actually uses the word metadidomai, and metadidomai is hyper. It's up and beyond. It's way over the top. So we're talking about something that has to be a spiritual gift because this isn't human nature here, to give or to share beyond yourself. And it carries this additional thought of giving from within your own resources beyond what you had planned. So many of us give to the church, and we give in such a way that it's part of a budget. And we we plan out, this is what I'm going to give, and we think ahead. And that's giving in its purest form, obviously. But metodidomai goes beyond that. And here's a good example for you. My wife has the spiritual gift of metodidomai. She loves to give and bless people who are in need or not necessarily even in need just because of her heart to give. So if you went to our house today and opened up our pantry, you would find on our shelf somewhere around 30 jars of applesauce, quart size, that she canned herself. And likewise, you would find many, many jars of salsa and many, many jars of peaches. And what Lori does is she will put away preserves that she has personally made with the thought in her mind that she's going to give away of her own. Now, I'd like to close the pantry door when people come over, right? Because I like those things that she makes, but she's always reaching in there and saying, hey, let me send this home with you. 
she loves to impart, to metodidomai, to go up and beyond. So it carries that additional meaning of sharing up and beyond, which is your own. When you're exercising this gift, and many of you have this, when you're exercising this gift, you're giving sacrificially. So here's the best way to illustrate it. When Jesus was talking with some individuals in Luke chapter 3, you find the leaders of Israel really mad at him. And they're saying, you don't represent what we think of when we think of the Messiah. But then he's got another group of individuals who are following him. And they're saying, what does it look like to follow the Messiah? How do we know that we really belong to God? Jesus responds with the most interesting comeback on that question. He responds this way. Look with me on the screen at Luke 3.11. Let the one who's been changed, in other words, he's saying, let the man who has two tunics metoditomai with him who has none. That's the fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus says, there's a gift in you. Cut your, your possessions in half by 50%. You got two, give one away. Keep one for yourself. You need to cover yourself, but give the other one away. That's, that's a fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, we're going to say this morning whether or not a believer has the gift of giving. We're all supposed to have a generous spirit. So Paul amplifies it by saying when they give, let them give with liberality. And what is that? Well, that's another Greek word. We're almost to the last one for you. It's the word haplotes. And haplotes is talking about with a singleness of mind. In other words, there's no distraction. It's not a person who's self-seeking. They're a person who's not seeking their own glory, they're seeking the glory of God. So Christians who give with liberality are not giving for recognition, they don't want their name on a plaque, they're looking for the glory of Jesus. Now here's how this applies to our church. Contribution works this way, the only way new hope survives, the only way New Hope thrives in 2018 with a $1 million budget and a $6 million campus that we're moving to that's almost paid for in cash. The only way that that happens is God causes hundreds of us to radically, regularly, cheerfully give. And the remarkable thing is God knows who you are I don't. I I choose to keep myself removed from the finances. Individuals who are really capable, like Kyle and our finance team, John Palmer, they manage all that. The remarkable thing is God knows who you are, and here's the cool thought. In eternity, the books are going to be opened, and you're going to get to see the fruit, the product of all that generous giving that you've done. If God wasn't moving in us in a supernatural way, how else could you explain a church of our size having a $1 million budget and an almost paid for $6 million facility? And we're only 10 years old. Is that not the work of God, church? It's just stunning to look at it in that light. Now we come into the last part, verse 8, 8b. He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, I see why Paul ended with the mercy part, and I'll show you why in just a second. Leads is the word prostomai. Pro, you you always think of leaning forward when you think of the word pro, moving forward. Prostomai is a person who leads, leaning forward, but standing before. That's, That's the meaning behind it. 
It means actually to stand before others. And that's where the thought of governance comes from. Our nation was founded on this thought of prostomai, uh, from the president on down to a mayor. We have a, a system of governance, someone who leads. And so in our mind, from a worldly point of view, we have an image in our mind of what leadership looks like from a worldly point of view. I find an author, Professor James Hume, spoke into this. This is the world mindset. He said this, every time you speak, you are auditioning for leadership. Well, that's excellent. That's a great perspective. He's right on for a person who leads. But that's really a worldly mindset because from the Bible's standpoint, The New Testament uses this word prostomai of the headship of a family and the leader in a church. So prostomai is one who stands before, whether this is a single mom or or this is a complete family unit or perhaps the patriarch of the grandfather over the family, the one who leads in this setting It's got to be done with diligence, Paul says. Remember, we're releasing the arrow. And he says, this is how you have to do it. So he says, the one who leads has got to lead with diligence. What is that? That's with earnestness, with a degree of gravity to it, with, with a sense of it's got to be done. In other words, no procrastination. And there's a passion behind it. That's what diligence is. Uh, here's the problem. From the worldly viewpoint, we would say leadership is seen as the fruit of ambition. That person is really driven. And every time they speak, they're auditioning for leadership. Well, that, that may be true in some form, but biblical leadership is actually carried out for the benefit of the people that they're leading, not for the benefit of the single individual. So here's what proper biblical leadership does. Proper leadership prevents procrastination. It prevents idleness. Let's transfer it over to the church again. What if the elders of New Hope had never decided three years ago that we needed to respond to what God's doing among us and build a building? What if we just decided to stack more services on? Well, for one, you'd have a totally burned out team of pastors right? We, we tried last year with four services, and it was just incredibly draining. And we'll do that again if we have to. But what if we just went completely idle? Biblical leadership with diligence is not idle in any way. It doesn't procrastinate. It's driven forward because of the purpose. And here's the last one. Shows mercy with cheerfulness. There's no Greek word in your notes for this, but I want to help you understand why he's talking about mercy here. Eleo is the word that's used, and it's got two things going on. And here's the two things. It's got the idea of demonstrating sympathy, but at the same time, to successfully comfort someone. And I've known individuals who have done that poorly, myself included. All right? So someone who's got the spiritual gift of that they're going to come with sunshine on their face. Arthur Way is an author and a theologian. He said this in 1926. If you come with sympathy to sorrow, bring God's sunlight in your face. That's a really great quote. And you might have been here a couple weeks ago when I shared about my debacle 10 years ago going into a hospital room trying to bring sympathy to someone, and I totally tripped all over myself. Open mouth and insert foot, right? 
Okay, so someone who's spiritually gifted, they're, they're coming in the room with sunshine, not looking like they've been raised on a lemon. You, you know what that looks like? You ever seen somebody who's been sucking on a lemon? Right? There's, there's no joy there. There's pain there. Arthur Ways nailed it. He said, if you've got that spiritual gift, you're going to be going in that hospital room looking like God's sunshine is all over you. And this involves way more than sympathy. This is actually putting feelings into action. Now, you might exercise this in a hospital, but you might just as well exercise it in a prison. You might be involved in jail ministry. Or maybe it's your next-door neighbor who just lost a loved one, and your gift goes way beyond just sympathy. You're actually doing something and putting it into action. Scripture speaks to this one to close it out. Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him, and him is God that he's talking about. Now, obviously, legitimately needy. There's a lot of pretenders out there, isn't there? We're talking about people who are genuinely needy. Here's the thought to close all this out. Paul's using all of these as the illustration to saying, don't just use them, but use them as someone who knows the mercy of God. You've had the mercy of God poured down on you. Use them as an overflow of who you are in Christ Jesus. God gave us gifts to bring him glory. And with the gifts he's given, just in this auditorium alone, just in this service alone, the gifts that he's given us will cause new hope to thrive, let alone stack on top of that the 915, stack on top of that the Saturday night service and all those who are not here every weekend. God has designed this church to thrive, and believers can be useful to each other and all of mankind, all of humanity in the way that we ought to be. Is this not what we need, New Hope? Is this not exactly what the world around us needs, our own nation, these United States, these kind of things pouring out of us? See, the world doesn't need just philanthropists. There's lots of philanthropists who give away money. What the world needs is Christ-centered philanthropists. The world doesn't just need leaders, it needs Jesus-focused leaders walking in humility. It doesn't just need teachers, it needs Jesus teachers. That's what we need. John Piper ends this really well, I wanted to close with his quote. Our world needs people who have trembled in the courtroom of God as guilty sinners, who have heard the joyful sound of mercy from the bench of the judge. What have we heard? You're free. You can go out into the sunlight. You can take off your jail clothes and leave your chains behind because Jesus has made you free. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed, right? So we go out and we use these gifts that he's given us. So I pray this way. Father, for your great glory and for your great name, set loose the gifts in the church. Let us abound at New Hope with these gifts. So I'm going to close in a unique way. I'm going to use a benediction verse over the top of you. Would you stand where you're at? And you're going to see why I chose this verse to close with. I pray that you receive this in the way that God intended it to be received. 
Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. Watch this. Even Jesus our Lord, watch what he does, equip you, equip you in every good thing to do what? To do his will. Working in us new hope, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So I could say forever and ever, forever, couldn't I? Because it goes on forever. Forever. Amen. Amen, New Hope. Amen. Have a great week.